0: Hey everyone, Austin here. On today's episode, Ken and I discuss laugh tracks. If you've never heard of this term before, what I'm referring to is the overlaid laughter often heard on TV shows. More specifically, it's the laughter you might hear following a joke or some witty banter between actors. But before I get into the episode, I'd like to take a moment to express how great all of the positive feedback has been from you, our listeners. This podcast, along with the platform, is truly a passion project that we've been developing. But more specifically, it's been a wonderful way to engage with other creative individuals like yourself. So, over the last six months, we've been collecting your feedback to help direct how the table sessions should grow as a platform. I think what's most relevant to this particular conversation is all the feedback we've been getting regarding episode release frequency. Up until the previous episode, we've been releasing content. In six-episode batches every couple of months. We've agreed this is far too infrequent, so we're moving to a monthly content release model. The goal will be to release one episode each month with what we're calling blitz episodes happening as often as every two weeks in between. While our monthly release episodes will be more of a deep dive into more complex topics, such as our investigations with inequality in Baltimore, these Blitz episodes will be more of a quick burn, focusing on singular topics or ideas. So that brings us back to today's episode, Laugh Tracks, which will be our first official Blitz. The primer and preliminary research you're about to hear from Ken looks into the rise of the American Laugh Track phenomenon, followed by some open discussion considering how the Laugh Track has and still is traversing our media culture. Enjoy. Enjoy
1: the laugh track is a symbol of our culture's value systems our current humor and our perceived collective need to keep up appearances straight from the desk of the media mogul the laugh track plainly states everyone else is doing it so you better too From a time when friends and families sat around watching sitcoms relating to the American household, the laugh track provided a conditioned respite for awkward pauses after jokes, telling us it was okay to laugh out loud while amongst friends. But society has grown dark, or rather our humor has grown dark. Cynical, sarcastic, self-deprecating, witty, and tragic. We are now conditioned to handle these comedic pauses as individuals, left to process the jokes in the black box of our own mind. But Why? Why did Larry David spend 10 years producing Seinfeld, one of the great shows of all time, which includes a laugh track, and then show his true colors and curb enthusiasm? Was that inner dark sarcasm monster of his waiting to be released, or did his taste for comedy evolve along with society's taste? Today, the laugh track seems hokey. But it still creates a pseudo-nostalgia of sitting on your parents' living room carpet, chuckling along to a sitcom with 51 liners in a row on the same stage set. Something about that worked. And by worked, I mean it made money, a lot of money, for network executives. And people liked it. The laugh track was just as central to the American family experience as apple pie. But at the turn of the century, it vanished. The laugh track is a simulation of genuine enjoyment. Now, we'd rather just enjoy TV how we want to, on our own terms. And now the content creators recognize this. So what caused this major shift in the way our television is marketed to us? The rise of the internet, the evolution of the American family model, and the shifting societal taboos all come into play. Maybe the loss of the laugh track is a symbol for innocence lost. Mostly for the good. Making us all Larry David. Okay. So um, basically post-World War II, everything in American society down to the entertainment was being reinvented. The technology was changing. The The way that we structured our lives and our family was changing. I mean, you basically had the Great Depression straight into World War II and you had a whole generation of people and that was their was basically their lives. And then in the 1950s, the onset of real um network television starts. Right? It moves from Broadway and theater and really, really early movies and TV into this kind of like mainstream week to week experience of television. And a lot of the early executives um in the th- there's the big three which I'll refer to is NBC, CBS and ABC from from nineteen fifty-two to 1999 those are the only three networks that were nominated for an emmy for a comedy for comedy so for 50 years basically they they ran the show right and they had to actually reinvent themselves later too but basically after world war ii um there started to be all these experiments with variety shows mostly hosted by you know people like you know bing crosby and all these famous people and all that stuff you know the The Jack fill-in-the-blank, or the Bobby, whatever, fill-in-the, you know, that's this kind of stuff. Um, And these early executives thought that um, people would be more comfortable if you just simulated a live audience. So they thought that was basically um, Jack Dadswell and Charlie Douglas, some of these early um, CBS and NBC executives, basically thought that people would relate better to television programming if they also thought it was being filmed in front of a live audience or they they could kind of be that live audience in their own family room, mm-hmm. right? Um, and what's amazing about it is the base motivation for the enti- for the laugh track is money, right? That's, that's the entire motivation. It's not really to make a better experience, although they'd say that. It's just say, will this make more money or will it not? So in 1966, I think, in uh, 65, um, there's a show called Hogan's Heroes where they literally released it as not laugh track, first laugh track to different parts of the country, and the the portion with a laugh track just did slightly better, and that kind of informed the next thirty plus years of how executives marketed television shows based off that single beginning study. all right and then shows like Bewitched, Andy Griffith Show, I of genie all this stuff, even cartoons like The Flintstones and The Jetsons. They started using the laugh track. Yeah, and, like the Hanna Hanna Barbera, yeah, cartoons. Yeah, and and uh, you know you get into Mary T- Mary Tyler Moore and all this stuff. And it it basically these shows could have been good in their own right, but the laugh track was just a proven commodity that started creating this kind of like mega industry network of money making, and it only amplified it and only made it better, and it never really failed. So they just kept doing it. It was kind of one of those things like the guy before me did it, so now I'm going to do it, and here we are 30, 40 years later, and the laugh track is still here. So that was kind of the beginning origins of the laugh track. And um, ironically, a lot of them are from this, the Red Skelton show, which is from the 1950s. It's a variety show. So there's a, um, a quote. Uh, the author, I'm going to butcher his last name, Chuck Palahunek. I don't know if I'm familiar with him, but Mm-mm. he wrote that, Literally 99% of the people you hear laughing on TV are dead because they were recorded in the 1950s. <laughs> so, like, that's how outdated. Even the laugh tracks used today are, are still uh, a lot of these original samples.
0: So it's it's just like they created bulk laughter very early on, and it's just recycled. Yeah, And, and because it's kind of background noise, we don't really notice. It's not like we're picking out, like, Bobby every single time. It's right. just... There's enough variation,
1: right? And a lot of that was replaced or remastered in like the, remastered in the '90s, I think, but it, a lot of that still stuff still remains today. So, what I was what I want to get down to is yeah, people. You know, there's all kinds of articles out there about the history of the laugh track and what it is and what shows had it and what didn't. But basically, what I did is I went through and compiled the Emmy winner for comedy series from 1966 to. 2018 Mm -hmm. because 1960 um 1966 was the year that they the first emmy award that included a real laugh track show that was that won and in 1965 there was no emmys but prior to 1965 there were basically some rebels like i love lucy which still um filmed in front of a they filmed in front of a studio audience but did not include a laugh track and that was that was kind of the a very rebellious thing at the time. Um, but basically, between 1966 and 1998, every single um, show that won the best comedy used the same pretty much the same sitcom model.
0: Can we? Can you just clarify the I Love Lucy model? So they had a live audience, but the live audience wasn't laughing, or or you <laughs> no. you would hear their laughter. Yeah, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll tell you. All
1: right, so let me get into the four types. How's that sound?
0: Yeah. Okay, so
1: type number one is a live audience with no laugh track, and this this harkens back um, to the original kind of tradition of the the Greek theater and, and theater production and Broadway and everything. Right, mm-hmm. whatever the whatever way the audience
0: reacts is what is heard. Okay, so if they're laughing or if they're like surprised, it's the true nature of the audience. Right, um, and I want to play a, a quick clip. So this is this is like one for one. Lucy's trying to make this bed mm-hmm. and she's kind of comically With, like adjusting to it and we're seeing the audience react in real time.
1: Right. But to see how the laughter is like much less consistent? It's like one person laughing. Yeah. And then everyone laughs at that moment. But since they're there You're gonna hurt yourself. But since they're there in the moment, they also might be expecting to be laugh, laughing and like yeah, they're also still among a crowd of people. So there's still kind of like this this like, you know, when you're at a movie or you're in a public space, or you're with other people, you you definitely feel more compelled to laugh out loud. Yeah. Um, but it's still authentic to that degree. Right. Like we, it's, it's still, it's, all, it's authentic to a public forum of, of viewership.
0: Like we right? just saw Young Frankenstein together. Right. Like um, You're
1: more compelled to laugh out loud because you want you want to share that laughing experience with the people
0: yeah and then it's like there's the people who have seen it before or kind of where the people who are expecting the joke almost start to build up the laughter right and then when the joke drops yeah like ab- you like everybody... you and the young frankenstein yeah you're the jokes ahead of everyone else Yeah, so like matt <laughs> matt and i were sitting behind everybody kind of giggling because we knew when like yeah frau brooker or yeah, the horse Roo! yeah 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 like uh, the it guys abby normal like yeah right. Yes. So okay.
1: this is the same thing as like SNL now. Like some skits bomb and some skits are good. And, you know, you never know if there's a little sweetening going on, which I'll get into what sweetening means, but you never know if there's a little bit of laugh track being put in there, you know. But like it's basically the variety show that I love Lucy of the world because I love Lucy was a show that existed right when this happened. And it was one of the first really important shows to say, we think this is dumb kind of thing and we're mm-hmm. just gonna if people laugh at our jokes so be it and the big problem with early laugh track stuff was that if you messed up mm-hmm. on the first take people won't people aren't gonna laugh as much the second time they see it yeah so the, you,
0: like the surprise is gone you really have to be good at it
1: yeah like this I Love Lucy they were the actors were good enough Lucille Ball and Desiree Arnaz, all these people that they could get it in one take most of the time whereas like if they had messed that take up and she tried to get into the bed again people wouldn't be Fucking laughing because mm-hmm. <laughs> they would know she's gonna fall. Yeah, yeah. Unless they were like they felt forced to and compelled to laugh, so that the laugh track is like, it's the easiest way to make sure you hit on. If say you do the fourth take of a fun, of a joke, you fuck up on, it's you're gonna always get a laugh because the laugh is, you know, pre-recorded, right? And then at home, the, the ten million people watching it at home, they're the ones that matter, mm-hmm. and they're gonna laugh too, mm-hmm. right? So. That moves into the second type, which is the most common. It's called sweetening, which is basically the show is still filmed in front of a live studio audience for the most part. And then people still get to laugh. But for the most part, there's not a ton of mics on the, on the audience. And there's a lot of kind of bass sweetening that happens after the fact. From the 70s to the 90s, this is The Friends, this is Seinfeld, Frasier, you know, pretty much every single sitcom you think of. This, that's what this is. Um, I have another link here that shows this actually happening. Taping, episode 90, and like all their shows, it will be seen by over 40 so this million This is home improvement. Tonight it's being filmed in line front line of line a live audience, but then they show one of the one-liners. Richard ...to show you how they
0: make the number one rated show in the country. Dad, Dad, you better come see Mom. She doesn't look so good. Well, then why
1: would I want to go see her? <laughs>
0: Because she's moaning real loud and calling your name. That's always been a dream of mine.
1: <laughs> so you see how those laughs are like remarkably consistent and timely. Yeah. So like, even though it's being filmed, like it just showed in front of a live studio audience. The the actual laughter you hear on TV really isn't that live studio audience, or the people in that audience are basically told laugh like yeah. on a big sign. Yes.
0: Yeah. So
1: like, and. Once we get to the the four here, I think we want to compare and talk about what that means to us as a viewer. Um, but that's the most common kind of general like simulation of genuine entertainment that a laugh track
0: is meant to convey, mm-hmm. right? And I, I wonder like, and I can't remember. I, I wrote it down, but I think The Big Bang Theory mm-hmm. uses sweetening as well. And there's yep. act- there's actually like a whole series <clears throat> of YouTube videos called. Big Bang Theory without the laugh yeah. track. Well, the,
1: the Big Bang Theory is kind of in its own modern aesthetic of, of a laugh track because it's like they kind of gave up on the live audience thing. Okay, and they just like it's kind of a, a leftover from a bygone era. They just
0: put it in there because because if you watch the videos, which are Big Bang Theory without the laugh track, eerie. It's it's like eerie. It's it's like Friends
1: too. It's eerie as fuck.
0: Yeah, because they're 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 almost stop cursing on this. They're they're like they're telling jokes but i'm i'm almost wondering if like are they actually quality jokes like how much am i being compelled to laugh at what might be considered um lesser jokes because i'm being told to laugh relative to the laugh track because when you listen to the big bang theory with the laugh track removed it it feels awkward and not funny at all yeah,
1: the same thing with uh, the Friends one. I, I think I have a link of the Friends one. It's the waitress. I'm starving. I
0: it's a buffet, man. That was supposed to be a laugh, right? Here's where I win all my money back. You can kind of hear the people laughing in the background in the audience a little bit. So, the like, like Friends had a live audience, right? For the most part, yeah. And then they sweetened it with laughter.
1: But this is where, I think this is where it gets kind of crazy, Um so you get to this point where you're used to people being in their apartments or at a restaurant or at the coffee shop and, and the, the studio audience can be there. But then you get into this world where you have to like maintain that illusion. And you get into this point where you, you have people in like an active world where the laugh track is basically hovering above them in this perceived kind of like, there's an audience watching, laughing. Mm-hmm. And that's basically what Seinfeld does. When like Seinfeld hits the streets or when Jerry hits the streets, people are still laughing but there's not like this connection to the like original theater tradition.
0: Was that was that with these other
1: two or did this, that This that, is number
0: 3. Yeah yeah yeah, but so the the um open world illusion, when did that come? When was that in the timeline? So
1: that that was experimented with early on in the 60s and 70s and it and it's, it, it didn't catch on as much. But here's an example.
0: This is like Dream of Genie. Love America. Love America. Okay. Well, to catch the first
1: wave. <laughs> so there's people walking on a beach, and then someone laughs. This is almost like the Brady Bunch style. But, like. they're not like they're not like playing any games of of like that they're in a studio they're just in the world and then like the laughter is basically coming from the heavens yes kind of thing yeah and like that that strikes me as as when it gets pushed to a point that it's unrealistic or like not believable anymore yeah or like it loses this kind of baseline connection to the theater aspect of like of like the original intent of the laugh track
0: because because ultimately we could think of contemporary media or contemporary tv shows as an extension of the greek theater Mm -hmm. where a play would happen in front of a live audience then we have the projection of a play using tv where we have a live audience in the in the studio and then we have the live audience in a studio that's being sweetened in order to make sure that jokes that might not have landed well are going to land well. But then when we've kind of curated our shows to be beyond these closed sets into more true to life scenarios, now the audience is almost disembodied from either the theater. It's a good way to
1: put it. Disembodied.
0: Yeah. They're like disembodied from either the theater or the studio, like the
1: direct viewing experience. Exactly. Like no longer. It's an indirect viewing experience that's being simulated.
0: Exactly. Right. So there, there's like a, there's a moment where we, even though that, even though the laughter is being simulated, we still link it to a live audience. But then there's a moment where the show puts us in positions where. There would never be a live audience. So the laughter is disembodied at that point. Right.
1: Like when Jerry is running down the street and Seinfeld in New York City trying to hail a cab, like there's no like stationary captive audience anymore. Yes. Right. Which is like, and and then you sit back and ask the question, like, does that matter? Maybe it doesn't. I still enjoy Seinfeld all the same when I watch it. But like, what does that actually tell you about? the the way the show is framed and the way it's marketed towards you and how you're supposed to perceive it and i think that's why number four um it's it's basically just real life it's the modern the modern aesthetic where the illusion of an audience is never portrayed and characters are living real life and after 1998 this is pretty much what what comedy became um and, and the big three kind of lost a little bit of their luster, like NBC, CBS, ABC, and others. You know, Fox, HBO, even lately, and you know, Amazon. All these other net, all these other FX, all these other networks are starting to take a hold of that territory. Um, episodes. You just think about The Office, Thirty Rock, Parks and Rec, Modern Family, Veep, The Marvelous Miss Maisel, Sex and the City, Arrested Development. They basically are just sarcastic kind of dark humor that has awkwardness and awkward pauses and sometimes happy genuine moments but there's never there's never kind of a moment that um tells you how to react
0: forget it tracy tracy listen, you cannot go into space your contract expressly prohibits dangerous activities like extreme sports or riding the subway on saint patrick's day what is this horseville because I am surrounded by naysayers. Wordplay. That is solid.
1: Right. And I and I think um that's a really important distinction in the way that we watch, even across generations, and how we watch and how we how we engage with the um the media that's in our households. And and, and this actually relates to our media tree episode as well a lot. But um I think I think there's, I don't think people are asking that question enough. So I don't know what, at that moment, now that we've explained kind of the four types and we're setting the stage for now, this is the successful mode of comedy on television. That's, that's no longer, that no longer has a laugh track. What do you think that says about, um, about how we, I don't know, our society's humor values basically, or our society's household values or, how the internet has changed. So there's, there's tons of factors, but I mean, what, what
0: do you think? I mean, my initial reaction would be to actually cite J.J. Abrams for a interview that he gave. It was during some kind of like panel discussion. I, I don't remember the context, but J.J. Abrams essentially was in a panel discussion where he was asked about his methodology for creating Lost, and one of the things that he said, and I'm paraphrasing because it was years ago when I saw it, but one of the things that he said was that he didn't think that, that essentially shows weren't giving the audience enough credit to solve mysteries or um, become deeply invested in dramas without the assistance of the show, almost spoon feeding them solutions or um, being told how to feel at certain moments. And and he basically said that su- the success of Lost was uh, very intimately tied to the fact that he didn't hold the audience's hand and that when he wanted to make a mystery, he, like he left it a mystery. Yeah, he, like, he just
1: left a smoke monster for five seasons and had
0: a polar bear like dead in the woods and you're like,
1: eh, yeah. fill in the blanks,
0: who cares? And it And it gave the audience an opportunity to question or like not like you didn't expect every person viewing to jump on the bandwagon of trying to solve the mystery, but it left it open to the people who would want to. And those people ended up becoming so exciting, so excited about the opportunity to solve the mystery that it actually um, created a tipping point where it almost made you uncool to not solve the mystery. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say my kind of initial impression is that contemporary shows and contemporary media has become more comfortable with trusting the audience's um, own emotions. Mm-hmm. As, I think that you could think of it as potentially TV as a new media being scared of their success and using the laugh track almost as training wheels. Um for the unknowns of whether the audience would laugh or if the audience would know to laugh, and at some point we experimented enough and saw the success of those alternative versions that we've actually become comfortable in trusting people's genuine um, intelligence and, and emotions. So I, I think that's like my um, that would be my um, initial um, gut reaction to why this shift occurred. Yeah.
1: I think, I mean, I think I know there's some generational bias because I'm of this generation that loves The Office and loves all these shows that are deadpan humor and all that stuff. But I think, I I mean, I think generally it's clear that, you know, in, I think you're exactly right. Like society used to be more sheltered in a lot of ways and especially in the way that we were, what we were told was like acceptable in the workplace to say like what, what were taboos like for people to like tell jokes or like what, what um what we could say or couldn't say to our parents or like what we could or couldn't say like in a public forum, how we could express ourselves, the methods that which we express ourselves with the rise of the internet, for example, you could start posting online and you could start being more anonymous and start to become a more expressive person non indirectly. Um, and that basically gave people since the 90s into the modern day, like more um, more agency, more, more independence, more self-expression, um, which lends to your point about, you know, people are smart and people can engage and, um, uh, you know, think about content in whatever way they want to think about it. And they can fill in the blanks and they can laugh inside their own heads if they want to, or they can cry inside their own heads if they want to. So like, it's not, it's not so necessary anymore for people to be handheld or people don't want to be handheld by their media. People don't want to be told what to do anymore. And Mm -hmm. I'd imagine that, um, you know, I'd imagine that there was a lot of shows or if we're talking about television shows that in the 60s and 70s and 80s that, that didn't use a lap track that just weren't as popular or that just weren't as palatable because there were less options for how you could um, how you could access stuff, right? Whatever was on NBC, CBS, and ABC, you're going to be watching because you only had nine channels and everyone in your family and all your friends watched The Brady Bunch. And if you weren't watching The Brady Bunch, you were basically left out. Like you weren't this like fringe person watching this, that, and the other. Because then it's that's like not cool in society, you know.
0: In its onset, the laugh track was employed as a means to cue people into what would be funny versus not funny. And at some point we trusted the audience to actually decide for themselves what was funny and not funny. And I think we're actually seeing a regression back to a laugh track model with the way that Netflix generates its algorithms because the algorithms are actually based Mm. off of, um, and I'm I'm not sure if it's based off of um, what the populace as a Mm. whole finds entertaining or if it's based off of your personal algorithm of what you find funny. But in a way, we're not given a true democratic um, presentation of what's available. We're giving something that's very curated and very spoon-fed to us Uh, about... This is a very good point. ...about what... um, we might actually be what we might actually find palatable to um ingest so so this is
1: a really good point i haven't thought of this so you're basically saying that prior so the laugh track was a real time approval system kind of thing that people like decided on while they're watching a show like They were testing us out, like, if you laugh here, if you laugh along, then this show will get good ratings and we'll keep making the show. But now you're basically saying, we have all the data, we have Netflix and Instagram, and we know what works and what doesn't, so we're going to release something we know you're guaranteed to like, so why would we bother making you laugh during the show when, or cueing you to laugh during the show when we know you're already going to laugh? Like, we know enough about you now. I, th-
0: I think there's that, but I think what I, the larger thing that I'm trying to convey is that shows employed the laugh track to cue the audience that they would know, that, to basically say, you will enjoy this, so you might as well laugh along. And then they trusted the audience to make the decision to laugh on their own. Yeah. And I think what Netflix is doing with their algor- algorithms is not giving us every option to say, um, choose what you would like they're actually using their algorithms to say hey we already know this yeah, is what you that's like. basically what i was saying yeah. i was agreeing with you yeah
1: so like but, it's it's almost even it's almost like even worse maybe we're not individuals anymore
0: yeah i think i think we're 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 in the next iteration of the laugh track with the netflix algorithm we are being told what we're going to enjoy but not as a moment but as an entire episode or as an entire movie.
1: So what do you think that means? Like I, you, I, that's I think it's a really, really good observation. I had never thought of before. But like, what, what does that mean?
0: What it means is, I think maybe I was about to say ten years down the line, but it's probably more like two years down the yeah, line. Black Mirror. Yeah. Fast forward. But um, I think what we're gonna find is that either Netflix will become privy to it, or we'll have another institution that will actually make um, genuine selection an option and that will feel like the new avant-garde option so we would actually start seeking out opportunities to have um, uh, uncurated selections <laughs> and I, it sounds like the exact
1: opposite of what like every media person would want
0: yeah i cuz cuz ultimately what Netflix is looking for is to understand enough about you and what you enjoy to keep giving you what you would enjoy in order for you to continue to use the platform but what if part of the human experience is actually traversing landscapes that we don't enjoy so that when we get to something that we generally genuinely enjoy it's felt deeper Mm -hmm. and maybe the option that we're missing is the availability of uncurated choice, and maybe Netflix is really generating a model that's just the, the next iteration of the laugh track, potentially. And yeah. I'm just free thinking this.
1: No, I, I, I mean that's a that's an angle I did not expect to, to talk about. But I, it's almost like, okay, if the laugh track is dead, something mm-hmm. took its place. Like some sort of manipulation is taking its place. Which it like these the network executives, and that's another thing. Like networks are also kind of dying, but like executives, people producing content, they are going to create something that is going to a make the money, and b hopefully be well liked. But basically, it comes down to money. So, you're basically saying that the vacuum left by the queue of the laugh track is the precuration of. Platforms such as Netflix.
0: Yes. Right. Okay. Or, yeah. or the laugh track kind of reinvented. It's um, like we've had many professors say things like no primitive people, only primitive means. Mm-hmm. And design is essentially design. And you see just the reiterative nature of it show back up. Like whether it's a stone wheel or a wooden wheel or a tire or like a hoverboard, it's still kind of. Velocity and motion, and whether it's a kind of a Roman emperor telling you to laugh, or it's a <laughs> Roman emperor telling you to laugh. Yeah, like whether, like, yeah, um, uh, I, I, yeah, something like that, but like whether, whether it's like a hype man telling you to laugh, or whether it's dead people um, recorded to cue an audience to laugh, or whether it's Netflix cueing you to let you know that you would enjoy something. I, I'm seeing this yeah. kind of reoccurring cool. nature of the um, uh, the curated cueing of enjoyment.
1: Or it's like put yourself in the mind of like a 14-year-old kid in high school right now. Like maybe it's your friends telling you you should laugh at something. Like maybe it's cool to like this specific show. And if you don't like the show, then like you're not cool or you're not like – you're not part of the in crowd or whatever. Like, it's that pre. Like, it's not even the media telling you you should laugh. It's like everyone around you says you're you're gonna go home and watch this by yourself, and there's no laugh track. But like, you should definitely like it because everyone else does. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the laugh track is like jumped, just jumped into
0: into real time. Do you do you think software and companies like Instagram? Have given the ability to curate laugh tracks to the individual that maybe our lives put on display and kind of queued up and given value systems are almost a way for us to create micro laugh track scenarios of sorts.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you're probably right. I mean, I think a lot of it's just more subtle now, and a lot of it's just more sarcastic and more cynical and individualistic. Like, if you look at the Instagram comments on any any large platform, the top seven comments are all inside jokes that predominantly kids from the age of 16 to 23, like, know, and, like, it's driven by high school and college age kids, and they all, all, like, like it and rev it, like, you upvote it and everything, like there's, there's a clear, like, there's a clear response and inside kind of l- comedic language that exists in that world now, which I'm like starting to age out of, <laughs> basically. Yeah, yeah. I, I know some of them and I, I don't know others. um, But, you know, all these people that run these accounts, now we're jumping in Instagram, like all the people that run these accounts, like, I'm sure the people that run these accounts like are younger that have to know all these inside jokes or they're just going to get torched mm-hmm. by all these commenters and like all these left and right wing political commenters and like bots and stuff like they have to know that this stuff is going to happen and and they have to know what's funny and what's not. So like it's a very it's a tightrope that, you know, that people walk in the media industry nowadays because you have to know if you're going to release content and it doesn't jive with the zeitgeist of like what's comedy these days. You're going to get just burnt to the ground, and you're not going to succeed. Mm-hmm. And and I don't, know, <laughs> I don't and I don't know if that relates directly back to the laugh track itself, but I think the way it relates is that there's never a pure. Um, a pure individualistic way of watching something unless you're literally sitting at a random set design and watching someone act. It's literally they're doing something for you one-on-one. You can engage that however you want. But once, the second you, you got a crowd in front of somebody, the second you start televising something, the second you start recording something, there's going to be the larger public consciousness of what's funny starting to judge that thing. And that's just a fact of all the way back to the Greek theater and all the way back to the original idea of, of being someone on a stage. Like there's a perceived judgment that exists in the world. People are trying to influence that judgment and the people that are trying to influence that judgment usually stand to profit off of that judgment. Mm -hmm. So as long as they're going to, people in power are going to do whatever they can to make sure that everyone watching it at least thinks they like it.
0: I I think, what's driving the reoccurring existence of this laugh track phenomenon is people in power trying to generate a successful model for either profit or for the success of their their entity. Yeah, which is the, profit. Yeah, essentially. It's all about money. So I think I think the thing that I would kind of bring up to... Kind of maybe look at this from another angle would be the Olympic Theater in Vicenza. Um, it's uh, Teatro Olimpico, which is essentially Theater Olympic. Uh, what I find nice. kind nice of a translation there. Thanks. So I, I had the opportunity to visit this theater uh, during a study abroad. The thing that I find really, like, really interesting about the, um, the Theater Olimpico in Vicenza is the curation of the stage set to mimic the exterior um, experience in Greek theaters, which would have the amphitheater, and then you'd have the triumphal arch, which would act as the kind of the um, stage backdrop. And to simulate the experience you would have sitting exterior, where you'd have kind of the diminution or the shrinking of objects in the distance, um, the theater uses a technique of lowering the ceiling and raising the floor and compressing the sides in order to create this like forced perspective. And you see this technique used in other um, kind of architectural elements like the Palazzo uh, Spada, um, where you have this hallway looking out to a cherub statue in the distance and kind of the shrinking of that hallway also elongates the space. But this this theater in Vicenza, um, through the technique of the forced perspective, creates the uh, the illusion of of the exterior environment. And painted on the ceiling above the seating is a mural of um, a um, lightly cloudy sky, mm. but ultimately a um, kind of a very blue open skyed outdoor environment. And so what's being replicated on the inside, is this exterior motif of viewing the theater. And what this allows is theater to happen every day of the year, regardless of um, weather conditions. But what it's also doing is it's almost creating fantasy theater inception by the nature of the theater is the act of putting on a fictional production Mm -hmm. and the theater itself is in a space that's curated as though it was outside being a fictional reproduction of the exterior. And so you are essentially um, creating a fictional environment for the audience, and then there's a fictional stage set for the curation of the play. And I think this could lead into potentially um, curated spaces in VR environments where we start to think about the consumption of media and the consumption of um, laugh track phenomenon overlays on top of VR experiences.
1: All right, let me let me jump in before you jump into VR because that's a whole other wormhole. Okay, I think yeah, I mean, I think what, what I'm gathering from this is that there's a degree of simulation to every kind of central aspect of of media, right? Sight, yes. sight, sound, whatever it is. Yes. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, there's a smoke and mirrors aspect to it. Yes. And,
0: and it's not a new phenomenon. It's, it's a not. phenomenon that goes right. back to like the, and, the induction of theater into our culture. And, and it's interesting because I, I
1: went into this thinking that the laugh track was just like a kind of a, a hokey, like I said, or kind of a negative thing. Or I looked I even though I love a lot of shows with that laugh tracks, I looked back on it as like, that's kind of an outdated, um, too intrusive thing. But if I accept that a stage set of an apartment, like in Seinfeld, for example, if I accept that that's like a real apartment in the show, then then what's who's to say that I shouldn't accept sound ma- manipulation when I'm already accepting visual manipulation? You get what I'm saying? Exactly. So like, um, and I think, I think the reaction to the laugh track, because it's, te- because it's sound manipulation or it's telling you what to do, it's actually um, manipulation of your own perception of that thing. It's just so overt that it's like an easy thing to criticize. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you're right. If you do look at like, the long history of how stage sets and how sound is manipulated and even how the other tactile senses are manipulated that is what a production is it's a it's a manipulation of reality in order to get a rise out of the people that are watching it and i think the laugh track was probably just the last or one of the last cherries on top of a hundreds and hundreds of years or thousands of years kind of evolution of of media production that just kind of like push it to a level that was just like maybe maybe one step too far for our modern aesthetic and then the the kind of reaction to eliminating it was just a a kind of a realignment of a of a larger kind of can or a larger simulation that's always been happening in the way that media is produced for larger audiences
0: yeah it kind of it kind of reminds me of there's like a there's a graph here is this it
1: the the uncanny valley
0: yes okay exactly so um I th- I think the laugh track actually falls into what is referred to as the uncanny valley mm. which like m- most all, um all
1: Robert Zemeckis films like the the Polar Express is the only one that's actually decent Everything else that makes people look too realistic gets weird.
0: Yeah, exactly. So the the whole phenomenon, and this comes up in AI a lot, is we're very comfortable with say a Roomba because it's a mechanical object, and we're also kind of lightly comfortable <laughs> say a Roomba, yeah, like a Roomba, say a Roomba, <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's like a, it's like a mechanism that's doing a task for us, and it's it has no relevance or or um, it's not curated in a way that reminds us of humanity at all, and we're also loosely okay with um biological representation in ai as long as we still see it primarily as uh robotic like or, if it has like a tectonic face exactly yeah. but the moment that the ai or the the simulated human starts to take on um real qualities it has to traverse what's called the uncanny valley and it's that awkward period is it's that awkward period right when you leave robotic um, imagery and right before you get into human imagery. Mm-hmm. And it's it's like where the face isn't exactly right or it feels a little bit too like wet or plasticky mm-hmm. or the like, proportions don't feel natural or it's like too perfectly symmetrical. It doesn't have the uniquely human qualities and it traverses this uncanny valley. And I think maybe the laugh track lives in yeah. that uncanny valley of... Um, uh, haptic experiences where is it haptic or yeah. is haptic how you feel things or is it just that's yeah yeah okay. but um how you feel things yeah i think i think maybe the laugh track lives in the uncanny valley of haptic experiences where we buy into the sights that we're seeing we believe the sounds of the characters but then there's this semi-unnatural overlay of laughter Mm -hmm. that is asking us to to believe in something we intuitively know isn't purely fake Mm -hmm. and isn't purely real. Mm -hmm. And there's something that we were playing with the idea of maybe that leading us to something that was real. And I think at some point we abandoned it Right. In, in media history to say the laugh track isn't going to make it to the other side of the uncanny valley. right? And and really what's on the other side is just true immersive media where we trust in the audience to make their own um, uh, decisions about what they're kind of ingesting. Yeah.
1: You're viewing another person experience life in a real way, even though that real way is hyper... Uh, manipulated by really talented writers and actors and stage sets, but it's like it seems real because it's 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 not being forced upon you. Yes, in that way.
0: Yeah. So I I would just um, and we can or we don't have to talk about VR, but my prediction for the next like ten years of our future is that we're going to see a resurgence of. The laugh track phenomenon in some new form taking place in the VR environment, just the same way that we had a Roman emperor, we had the laugh track, we have Netflix <laughs> curating what we might like. I think in the VR environment, we might see something similar to um, spatial projections on environments, smells, um, experiences, and sights that might be algorithmic, algorithmically chosen for us. And I think we want to be very careful in that space to understand how much pre-selection is actually good mm-hmm. for us as um, emotional tactile creatures and how much of digital space we want to leave open to essentially what would be free will. I think that's a good
1: open-ended question to leave it on Uh, because I don't think we're going to take it that much farther but I think like that could even be a further exploration we do but I I I think we've come to some decent conclusions
0: yeah I love the study I love the graphics
1: cool man I I did not expect to land in the Uncanny Valley at the end of this but I think uh, I think you're right Uh, it's it's always illuminating to, to, to work on a study like in your own kind of insulated uh, mode and think that you know one thing is right or one thing is wrong and then you open it up to just one more person and then you start to realize that there's tons of ways to look at this. And I wonder, hopefully we can get some feedback and from people when they listen to this and and kind of relate their experience to something as simple as a laugh track and then jump into how they engage with Netflix and Instagram and the Uncanny Valley and all these things. Like, It's really about... Um, you know everything we we consume is manipulated and we just have to accept how much it's manipulated and what's an acceptable level of manipulation
0: but totally hey everyone ken and i just wanted to thank you again for listening to the episode The Table Sessions podcast is produced and edited by me, Austin Raymond, and Ken Filler, and is a product of The Table Sessions Media, the collaborative platform for audio, visual, and written content. Our theme music was created by Dan Filler. You can find more from Dan on Bandcamp.com, such as his album, As the Soil Turns Red. If you like what you heard, you can visit our website, thetablesessions.com, to check out our full range of content. You can also follow us on Instagram at Table Sessions, where we post photos and content from each episode. Also, if you'd like to support our calls in more tangible ways, you can visit our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the table sessions for exclusive updates and more. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you again next episode.